Hey everyone, Jason Malone here. Welcome to the Jesus on Display podcast. Before we begin today's content, I wanted to say thanks for supporting us here at Fellowship Greenville with your gifts and your generosity. Because of your giving, we get to share resources like this podcast with you to help reach you wherever you are in your life with Jesus. If you'd like to support the ministry of Fellowship Greenville, you can head to fellowshipgreenville.org forward slash give to get started. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Based on what we read here in verses 14 and 15, maybe it was something like this. Hey, Pergamum, you have some folks in your midst who are coming out of worshiping at the altar of Zeus, and they're accustomed to eating this food sacrificed to idols, and they're accustomed to participating in various forms of temple prostitution. So rather than rock the boat, and point them toward a moral and sexual sexual ethic that mirrors what Christ taught. Instead, in the name of love and tolerance, we'll continue to allow them to operate however they they want to as long as they proclaim Christ. Or maybe it was, hey, we don't wanna step on anyone's toes who might be coming out of the pagan world, coming out of worshiping all these temples and practicing these things. So we're just not gonna talk too much about that kind of stuff. We're not actually gonna talk about the kind of transformed life that the gospel of Jesus Christ grows in us and how it impacts every area of our life. It isn't someone threatening their lives if they don't recant their faith in Christ. Rather, it's their unwillingness to bring the beauty of the gospel to bear on all of life. Jesus says that's where the danger lies. Now my question for us is does that sound familiar? in our cultural moment. Maybe it's something that you might admit you battle with at times, personally. If I'm honest, I think it's one of the greatest challenges facing the church in the upstate of South Carolina. Not just here, I just happen to be here. (laughs) Lots of places around the globe. It is this idea that we're being fed that um, tolerance is king, or as one author says, tolerance as defined by the world around us holds high this idea that we must recognize and respect that every individual's values, truth claims, beliefs, and practices are equally valid. And with that mindset, truth is this moving target that gets to be defined by whoever's holding the target. And so because of that, tolerance is understood to mean that we as the church, we can't hold to anything that's black or white because you're intolerant. So according to that system, then respect looks like wholeheartedly approving of others' beliefs or lifestyle choices as equally valid. And then dignity in each person is defined by the fact humans have an inherent worth shaped and realized by personal choice and standards created by the individual those few quotes there from the book, The Beauty of Intolerance. Now here's what we have to acknowledge. To many people, and maybe to you, I don't know, you, that sounds like an okay way to live and do life, right? I wanna be known as being tolerant. I'm being told where I live, work, and play that I have to be tolerant. Which means for me to care about you, I'm gonna have to affirm that every truth, claim, and belief is equally valid. Every choice is equally valid. And I demonstrate that you have value when I elevate some sense of your personal fulfillment above everything else. And you know why that sounds great to a whole lot of people? 
and why the people of Pergamum and the church of Pergamum probably bought into it wholeheartedly? Because then you don't have to have any hard conversations with anybody. I mean, as great as it is that Pergamum held firm on the, the big stuff, their unwillingness to have these, uh, what I would call uh, little, yet difficult, yet gracious, yet loving, yet firm conversations about what it means to live like and run after Jesus, not just with the profession of our mouths, but with the decisions of our lives. That unwillingness, according to Jesus, undermine the stability of their faith and the power of their testimony in a place that their faith and their testimony mattered a lot. So people in the church at Pergamum were saying, it's okay to eat the meal that has been sacrificed to idols and give yourself to whatever sexual practice you want as long as nobody's getting hurt. Idols are no big deal. And Jesus says to them, look back at verse 16, Jesus says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says to the church of Pergamum, turn around, head in the opposite direction of the way you've been headed. Leave that thinking behind and confront the sinful, destructive teaching and actions of the Nicolaitans, regardless of how painful or uncomfortable it might be. Face it head on. Jesus is coming to wage war against the Nicolaitans and the most loving thing you Pergamum, you Christ followers, the most loving thing you can do is point them to the truth and righteousness of Jesus. They said, no big deal. Jesus says, really big deal. Jesus says, what is associated with the idol is the presence of unseen spiritual forces. Because idols aren't just wood and stone. They could be but they're made up of cultural values and political agendas and lifestyles and corporate values and even religious movements. Or as author Daryl Johnson says, idolatry of any sort is never a neutral act. Indeed, it is always a positive evil. And there's no way around having this conversation without acknowledging that the reality that is peace and harmony suffers at times when we're committed to walking with our brothers and sisters and having hard conversations in love about how the gospel impacts all of life, every area of our life. Now, please hear me closely. It's a little tense in here. I get it because of the topic. At the exact same time, I'm not advocating we be a church filled with theologically arrogant and morally judgmental jerk faces. That's not the deal. And if you spend any amount of time with us here at Fellowship Greenville, you know that's not our deal. If you look to Jesus as your ultimate example of how to live this out, you see he doesn't give us any room for that kind of nonsense. I refer you back to Charlie's message in regards to Jesus and his interaction with Zacchaeus. It doesn't mean that we don't welcome folks into our midst with open arms, we do. It doesn't mean that we don't give folks the space to wrestle with doubts and fears and frustrations with God, we do. Or those of us here that wrestle and battle against sin. But we can have the conversations that need to be had because as we said from the outset, as Christians, we're not primarily called to tolerance. We're called to love defined by truth. And if you're wondering what loving people with the truth in a love is tolerance world practically looks like, I think the key 
I think the key to that is acknowledging and living in the reality of what Jesus says as he started this letter to the church at Pergamum. I actually wanna go back, I skipped it, you might have noticed the Christ title. Let's go back to verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So here in verse 12, we see Jesus described as one who has a sharp two-edged sword and then in his call to them to repent, we just read in verse 16, he says that if they refuse to repent, he will come to them and war against them with the sword of his mouth. So what is Jesus saying when he talks like this? Well, if you remember back a few weeks ago as we read through Revelation 1, verse 16, this isn't new imagery. He says the same thing there. Jesus is the one who from his mouth has a sharp two-edged sword, and here's what that means. It means that Jesus, and only Jesus, has authority. That was the, that's what the, the picture of the sword would have evoked in the minds of those in Pergamum who would have immediately thought of the Roman governors for whom the sword was a symbol of their right to rule and dole out justice as they saw fit. But Jesus is the one who has the ultimate authority and his sword is both two-edged and coming out of his mouth. Here's what that says to us. It tells us that it is by the power of his word that Jesus Christ has ultimate authority because he, as God, doesn't simply possess truth. He is the truth. And as it's two-edged, it lets us know that he has the ultimate authority to both judge his church and bring destruction and vindication against his enemies. And here's why that matters and why we need the reminder in the everydayness of our lives. It reminds us of who exactly is our arbiter for truth. It reminds us, church, who gets to define truth. You know who doesn't get to define truth? Me. You know who else doesn't get to define truth? You. You know, this doesn't get to define truth. Your friend at work who has read some pretty significant and well-reasoned books on the topic. You know, this doesn't get to define truth. Your family member or your neighbor who has the latest hot take on how to navigate loving people. It isn't any of them. It isn't any of us. Now, those are all people that God has called us to love. They're image bearers of God. They have inherent worth, they have value, they have dignity, but they don't, we don't get to define truth. Jesus does. And in light of that, there's been a couple of questions that I've been considering this week that I wanna invite you to consider because this is the water we swim in. The whole idea of tolerance is the most important thing. So. The question, the tension, the wrestle is this, how do we avoid simply becoming theologically astute jerks who have forsaken love like the church of Ephesians and at the same time not be passive? Live and let live. You're forgiven, so live however you want. Who am I to say anything? Tolerators, like some in the church of Pergamum. And I wanna suggest, instead of starting with other people, that we start with ourselves. Here's a question I was thinking about this week. Lord, where am I minimizing sin in my own life? Here's what I know that I think you also know. What we don't repent of quickly has a way of turning into compromise over time. What we don't repent of 
quickly has a way of turning into compromise over time. Or maybe I could say it this way, you and I will not hold the truth of Jesus high if we have grown bored with pursuing Jesus. It's impossible to love those who are in sin if we ourselves are not intent on dealing with the sin in our own lives. If I'm spiritually unmotivated, having drifted to a place of nominal, complacent, going through the motions towards the things of God, then I will naturally and easily not only tolerate things in my own life, because I know I'm tolerating things in my own life, I would never speak into your life about things that shouldn't be tolerated. And it's just the reminder, you know, I know this isn't super popular for a lot of people to be talking about these days. Let's talk about repentance and sin. <laughs> Compromise for the church in Pergamum, and again, it was the church in Pergamum. I'm not talking about people who don't know Jesus. I wanna just remind us all of that. I'm talking about your brothers and sisters. I'm talking about you if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're listening today, listen in. Love to have conversations with you if you're interested in having a conversation. <clears throat> Compromise for the church in Pergamum wasn't overt. It was subtle, it was slow. It was a gradual shift from growing and maturing in Christ to simply hearing truth about Christ. And I think that's the challenge that faces the church in the West. If I could paint with a broad brush. Not just hearing truth, but growing and maturing in Christ because he is the truth. And I don't know what your walk with Jesus looks like and I don't know what your background is. I'm gonna acknowledge something really quick. This wasn't in the first service. Matt, I realize I'm gonna go over because I'm just talking now, but I think it's led by the Holy Spirit. Here we go. How often are we actually asking the question that just popped up on the screen when we become before the Lord in our times with the Lord? Lord, is there any place that I'm minimizing sin in my life? Not that I'm not loved, not that I'm not cared for, not that it's under the blood of the cross, all those things. Come on, phones. I'm just saying, asking that question to let the Spirit speak to things. The follow-up question would be this, Lord, where am I rationalizing indifference or tolerance towards others? who I have relational capital with, who aren't walking in the truth. Lord, where am I rationalizing indifference or tolerance towards others who I have relational capital with who aren't walking in the truth? Maybe I could ask it this way. Is it actually the most loving thing to say nothing in the name of tolerance to those that you love and care about as they walk or run down a road that will destroy them or keep them from living in the fullness of what God has for them in Jesus Christ. Is that actually the most loving thing you can do is not say anything? We read here in this passage, we looked at today that Jesus was passionately intolerant. 
of the teachings that were making their way passively through the church. The idea of do what you want, Jesus loves you, it doesn't matter if you mix what the world is selling you with Jesus. And I do think it's okay to stop and ask the spirit if we've been seduced into mindless indifference or rationalized away the need to speak truth and love to those we do love because we filed it under the umbrella of the cultural hot topic of the moment, which is tolerance. And I put relational capital on purpose. I'm not telling you to go stand on a street corner and scream at anybody or anybody. I'm talking about your brothers and sisters in Christ that you have relational capital with, that you've backed off being intentional with. And that's the story of a lot of you in this room. The story of a lot of you in this room is that there was someone close to you who didn't let you keep running down the road. And I know it's under the sovereign hand of God. I know that he's orchestrating all of the stuff. I also know that there was somebody who loved you enough to not let you run down that road under the umbrella of let's just be tolerant, let everybody do whatever they wanna do. Cause it didn't hurt anybody, but it is. Now, lest you think we conclude our time only processing our sin, <laughs> we won't. We never do. Jesus doesn't. So let's read the words of promise from Jesus to the church of Pergamum, and they are words of promise for us to today. This is what it says in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is so good. The promise of those who walk with Jesus, his church, is that they, just like Israel was fed with manna from heaven as they made their way to the promised land, the church will be fed by Jesus himself, who is the bread of life, or as author Sam Storms likes to say, Jesus and only Jesus will be the sustenance of our body and soul for all of eternity. On him alone shall we spiritually feed and draw strength. He is the source of our ongoing and eternal life. We are forever dependent on the infusion of his grace and mercy. What's Sam saying that Jesus was saying to the church of Pergamum? I believe it's this. There is coming a day when we will never tire of Jesus. You'll never be bored with singing praises to his glorious and wonderful name, thinking about how you can beat the crowd to get out of here quicker. You will never be underwhelmed with his grace towards you. You will continually be captivated by who he is and the fullness of which he knows you. John's gospel, John 6, John writing all of this. John knows, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I am your sustenance. I am your life. I am the truth. I am your truth because I am the truth. It's no coincidence then that at the end of Revelation, in Revelation 19, we have the marriage feast, the supper of the lamb, wherein the bride of Christ feasts with and celebrates with Jesus, her husband. And the white stone is probably a reference to stones that were given. There's a lot of thoughts on the white stone thing. Read a lot of different things on that. Fascinating. Probably a reference to stones that were given to folks to be able to access back in the day rituals and festivals to participate in the trades of the day. It was a pass. It was, a, it was access. And yet here, Jesus says, there's a new name on it. You got access. And it's your name. A new name. Referencing our new identity in Christ, our union with Christ. So imagine 
Look forward. There is this feast and you have access to it because of who you are in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is pointing our eyes forward. He's pointing the eyes of those in Pergamum of the church there, pointing them forward and saying, this is what awaits you. A new day where you will be with me and you will feast with me and you'll have access to me because you are mine. The Jesus on Display podcast is produced right here at Fellowship Greenville in Greenville, South Carolina. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Follow and share this podcast with anyone who might be interested or curious about our church community or how storytelling unites us and helps us feel more connected. To actively keep up with what's going on at our church, head to our website at fellowshipgreenville.org. Follow us on all social media platforms and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. Grace and peace to you for your week. We'll see you next time.